Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Hey, okay, it is Monday, February 26, 4 o'clock. We are here at the Institute honoring Reverend Sampson with Frida Sampson. And uh, right in New Center, as uh, New Center is a place that means a whole lot to a lot of Detroiters. And we're talking Black Coffee. That is the podcast. I'm Kari Frazier. Uh, This is a part of DetroitIsDifferent.com and many of the other things to come. And the guest we have today is somebody we wanted early on (laughs) and active. Uh, He's doing tours. He's uh, getting into uh, intellectual arguments about the status of uh, education <laughs> in America <laughs> and how you can do it effectively. And he's also somebody that's uh, walked the streets of Highland Park in Detroit that's right. for many and many years. That's right. Jamon Jordan, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see uh, uh, Miss Sampson, Fr- Frida, and I'm glad to see you, Brother Kari. So I'm glad to be here. All right. Okay. So we're going to kick this whole thing off how we generally start this off. Uh, Calvin was our first guest. He he kicked this off. Uh, Calvin Moore. Yes. And you have tours. I know Calvin. Yes. So uh, when it comes to black history in the city of Detroit, mm-hmm. what do you think makes Detroit such a unique place in the pantheon of uh, America's black history? Yeah. So Detroit has a number of reasons why. Um, it's a it's a really a focal point of discussing African American history and culture. So of course, one of those reasons is that it the African American community, the Black community in the city of Detroit, is really formed around this fight for freedom. So the Black community in Detroit didn't come about by osmosis. It was a movement. So the community has movement built into it, into the into its very um, genes. The, the, the genetic structure of the black community in the city of Detroit is built on this fight for freedom. Mm-hmm. Because when African Americans uh, are in the city of Detroit, even as far back as the 1700s, of course the French and then later the British are enslaving African Americans or, or Africans at that time. And they're, of course, um, struggling for freedom. People are escaping, people are doing all kinds, people are suing um, for their freedom in the 1800s. Before Dred Scott versus Sanford, you have um, Denison versus Tucker, right here in the city of Detroit. So people are doing all kinds of things to fight for freedom. Now that's going to become more organized by the 1830s, 40s, and 50s into what is going to be known as the Underground Railroad. And Detroit's role in the Underground Railroad is always understated. It's never stated to the degree that it should be. Most of us know something about the East Coast wing of the Underground Railroad. We know what Harriet Tubman was doing, and we know what Levi Coffin was doing, and William Steele. But many people throughout the country don't know what George D. Baptiste was doing, and they don't know what William Lambert was doing, and they don't know what, uh, what, what Second Baptist Church was involved in. And so people in Detroit who, who's, who ensconced themselves in this history know it, but this history should be just as well known as what was happening on the East Coast. And so that's another focal point of Detroit's African-American history. And that history can be tied to the later history of Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, as well as the history, the more well-known and vaunted history of Motown. Motown is connected to Paradise Valley, which is connected to Black Bottom, which is connected to this fight for freedom in the early 1800s and 1700s. All of that is one history and it's all connected. 
All right, so you just threw at us like layers upon layers three upon layers, <laughs> three or four things mm-hmm. that we could that we could get into. Mm-hmm. Um, first, let's talk a little bit about the Underground Railroad in Detroit and that connection. Yes, yes. So Detroit's what ro- was existing? Yeah, so Detroit's uh, role in the Underground Railroad is, of course, uh, makes sense. It's logical because, of course, Detroit's proximity to another country, which is Canada. And of course, this border, the Detroit River, we look at it as a border today, but prior to it being a border, it was a freeway. It was a way of getting from one place to another. And so people escaping from enslavement, even during the period when Detroit had slavery, and Detroit had slavery, even during that period, people are using the river to get away from enslavement. Now, by the time we get to the period in the 1830s, where people are escaping from the South, they're escaping from um, um from slave catchers, and there's been a three fugitive slave laws that's gone into effect in the United States history, one in the Constitution, the second in 1793, and the third is the 1850 fugitive slave law. People know that slave catchers can come get you even if you were in a free state. Mm-hmm. So being in Detroit may not be enough to get you free. So you, if you're in Detroit, you're here because you're in the proximity of Canada, and you can cross the river where the slave catcher's ability to bring you back is stopped. They do not have the ability to go into another country and bring you back. So Detroit's role is important in that, and people organize around that. You know, so um, you have people who organize organizations. So the Color Vigilant Committee, which is founded by people like um, George D. Baptiste and William Lambert. The shortest way of putting that is that's the Underground Railroad in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. So that's the organization that's chiefly involved in helping people not only escape from enslavement, but avoid being captured and being re-enslaved and taken back into the South. So so you talked about a couple of different churches. This churches, uh, First Congregational Church has a whole exhibit about their role in yes, the yes, Underground yes. Railroad. Uh, man, I can't remember exactly what's the name of that one church. Um, Second Baptist. Second uh, Baptist. St. Matthew's and Bethel AME. I think it's St. Matthew's. It's okay. like in, across the street from uh, Easter Markets uh, where Busy B Market used to be. Okay, so there is a, a ch- an old church there as well. It, uh, uh, its role in the Underground Railroad is not as pronounced as the other three, but mm-hmm. a lot of those older churches, if they had a significant number of members who were abolitionists, mm-hmm. were at some level involved. I just know mm-hmm. that church uh, because uh, Jimmy Womack was, uh, mm-hmm. was a preacher there, mm-hmm. and in the church one day he just said, come here, I got to show you something. When I used to have a studio down in Easter Market, there's a, they have uh, these caskets, mm-hmm. and in those caskets it's like they would put uh, uh, the body of People, you know yeah. a person that is dead, mm-hmm. and then under that, under it, it's like layers of it, and this mm-hmm. is an actual casket where people in the Underground Railroad would be yes, in yes. this casket, and it's there in that church, and it's right. like, man, this is across the street from where I'm mm-hmm. rapping and you know making music every day, and I had no idea. Also, down the street from where you know Juan Atkins and them started techno music, that's you know right, what I'm saying? Right, like it's right. all within. Like this, this short little, this small little area, mm-hmm. yeah. and Detroit was a small little area in this this time period, the eighteen hundreds. So it's a small area. So mm-hmm. the people who are involved, particularly African Americans who are involved in this, they all know each other, mm-hmm. you know. And then at some point, in some cases, their their families are interwoven. Those families intermarry; they're connected. And so m- by the time we get to just before the Civil War. What we call the Underground Railroad in the city of Detroit is really a family situation. I mean, these are families involved, interwoven families who are involved in helping 
people, in some cases, people they know and are related to them, and in other cases, they're helping even strangers escape from enslavement. So that actually uh, leads me to the question, if you would paint a picture mm-hmm. of what that experience had to be like for that slave trying to get to Canada, what did that look like, feel like? What was that process? Yeah, so it was, a, of course, it was a daunting process. In many cases, people who are escaping from enslavement, the beginning steps for many of them is on their own. So when they leave the plantation, in many cases, they don't have nobody helping them. Harriet Tubman is not at every plantation leading people to freedom. So some people escape on their own, and sometimes they're escaping because of something um, that's, a, that's devastating that's about to happen to the family. The so husband and wife. on a lot of plantations that, hey, you need to go north, technically, to Canada. Like, how did it even word? So in places like Kentucky, in places like uh, Missouri, in places like Maryland, uh, in Virginia even, you have people going north. But that, that's an, that isn't the only form of the Underground Railroad. In places like Louisiana and Texas, people are going to Mexico uh, to get free. Some people are from Louisiana are leaving and getting on boats and going into the Caribbean, particularly after the Haitian Revolution. So people are going to different places. In South Carolina, in Georgia, they're going into Florida. And, and it's news, though. It's traveling yeah, right, right. via... How is the new? Like, so this is the, way. Know, so this it, is a Twitter. It, back no Facebook, no t- yeah, yeah, Twitter, yeah. and all yeah. of that. But word gets around, and mm-hmm. so people are escaping. And because they know, well, some people are escaping on their own without any knowledge and, and want to forge to ahead for freedom. But some people have word that there are people involved in helping others escape from enslavement. Here in this in Detroit, there's an organization. I said the Color Vigilant Committee. But there's a secret society, the African Men of Mystery, Order of Oppression, where William Lambert and George D. Baptiste are part of that organization as well. And it's more secret. You have to be initiated. It's, you know, both of them were Freemasons, Prince Hall Freemasons. So they're using some of the Prince Hall Freemasonry rituals and in, in, in tra- changing them to accommodate the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. And they're secret. To be initiated, you have to go down south and rescue somebody from a plantation. Wow. So it's a little different than Alpha Phi Alpha. You know, there's a Greek at this table, guys. I know, I'm not, I'm not anti, <laughs> no, but, I'm, but I'm saying that, the, as you can see, yeah. that um, this idea of using whatever you have, if, you, if you're a Prince or a Freemason, that has to be incorporated into freedom fighting. If you're a minister and you are a church, you have to incorporate the teachings of Christ or the gospel inside of freedom fighting. Yes. If you're a business owner, you have to incorporate whatever you have, whatever skills and abilities you have, that has to be incorporated in the fight for freedom. So, so going back to paint a picture and yes. Kari's point, you know, in this kind of contemporary thinking, we, you know, we can pick up the phone, we mm-hmm. can get online, yes, yes. we can communicate through a multitude of, of facets, but, but that wasn't an option, no, obviously. No. Yes. So how do you get to that individual on that particular plantation that is, uh, that is sick and tired of being sick and tired and willing to risk their life for freedom? How do you get that information to them? I, you know, yes. I, I know through, through the narrative of song. Yes, well, but, that was a major one, yes. Okay, but mm-hmm. were there other ways? And, and then, yes. so if you could start at that part of the journey and kind of fast forward, us to them actually stepping on the land of Canada. Yes, so we have, um, what we now know is, in some cases, the Underground Railroad was was very much um, not as organized as we think, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of people were doing stuff haphazardly and, and ending up being blessed to be get, to get free out of um, d- just impossible odds, mm-hmm. and we don't know how they were able to do what they did is really mm-hmm. almost superhuman. 
Yeah, as, as those as slave catching was a <laughs> right, huge business. Right, right. I mean, right. that was like the the roots of the FBI. You know, right, FBI, right, right. Police officers. Right. You know what I mean? You know. But on the other hand, in some areas, the Underground Railroad was highly organized and highly sophisticated. So you got both extremes existing at the same time. So it was like Ho Chi Minh Trail. So <laughs> right. like at certain points, it's like, all right, yeah, you're not gonna have to cut yes. through all of this. But then at certain points, you're on your own. That's right, right. So the um, the the Pinkertons were abolitionists. So most people know about the Pinkertons. They are they are um, a, a secret detective agency that are being used in the West later on when the West is being conquered and they're capturing the the um, the the outlaws in the West. But prior to that, in the 1830s and 40s, they're involved in their, or the children or the, the 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 first generation Pinkertons are involved in um, the Underground Railroad. And so this is a highly sophisticated group of people who are using all kinds of secret passages and, and um, secret ways of escaping and secret ways of communicating to get to people. And so they're involved and they're working with John Brown, they're working with the Color Vigilant Committee right here in the city of Detroit. They're working with people to, to do all kinds of things. William Lambert, we found, or, or Sharon Sexton has uncovered that William Lambert had a cachet of manumission papers some of which, no doubt, he, okay. he's for, forging. Manumission. What is a manumission paper to okay. begin with? Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so manumission was one of the legal ways that you could free someone from slavery. Okay. So a person was enslaved, and their slave owner, for, for certain types of reasons, could manumit them. Some states mm -hmm. limited what you could manumit a person for. So Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass escaped. On, he escaped um, mm -hmm. to get right. free. But manumission would be... Uh, some of the ways you could be manumitted is um, you did some act of bravery. Let's mm -hmm. say there's a fire and you went into the burning house and you saved the slave owner, the plantation owner, from being burned. Because of that act of bravery, you could be, the, the slave owner could manumit you. He could write a, 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 a document, submit it to, submitted to the court okay. that you would be free. So he would sign it, and you would, have, of course, have to carry that everywhere you go now that you have it. Um, because if you're pulled aside and questioned and you don't have that paper, mm -hmm. then, of course, you could be re-enslaved. So that's manumission. That would be one way you could be manumitted. Other forms of manumission could be last will and testament. So a person is about to die, and they, on their last will and testament, they will write that, you know, you served me well in life, um, and as I'm passing away, I, I want to make sure that um, you were taken care of, and so I manumit you, and, and they free you. Hmm. So they could free you upon their own death. And then they could also free, another way that they generally free people is as you got older and unable to take care of yourself, uh, a kindly master, and I'm saying that in quotes, mm -hmm. um, a kindly slave master could free you because now you're up in age and you really aren't good for the um, plantation work anymore, and so you could be manumitted for, the, for that. Some states didn't allow mm. many mm. forms of manumission because they did not want, the presence of free black people was mm. a problem in any area where slavery was predominant. Yeah, that would make sense. And if I remember correctly, as I was saying with Frederick Douglass, he was supposed to have uh, oh, okay. received. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, his freedom, he did not, yeah, and that, then that's lit what led to him saying. Yeah, so that's mm. a that's a common occurrence where you have a number yeah. of people. Another one is is serving in the war. So James Robinson 
serves in the Revolutionary War on behalf of his slave owner. And of course, he's, th he's promised that he will be freed at the end of the Revolutionary War. He serves with valor and you know, basically is a, is a hero in the war, um, taking out um, numerous British soldiers. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the war, he's not freed. Mm. He wow. then serves in the War of 1812. And again, now the children of his slave owner are, uh, are promising to free him if he does that. He's like 50 now. And he's serving in the War of 1812. Mm. Again, he's a hero. He serves with Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. Again, he, he they don't free him. Oh my God. Eventually, he escapes. Mm. And after escaping, um, he, he ends up in the city of Detroit. And during the, during the Civil War, he's like 100. During the Civil War, he's in, at, advising what was at first the first colored Michigan regiment, which is going to become the 101st Michigan Infantry, um, colored infantry. He's going to be mm. an advisor to them, as well as a barber and a minister. He's buried in Elmwood Cemetery. He's the oldest person buried in Elmwood Cemetery. Wow, so I how never old was knew he when he died? Yeah, 114. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's on, you can see it on his, um, on his um, 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 tombstone, his, his headstone. Mm. Yeah, he's the oldest person buried in, in Elmwood Cemetery. Served in, technically kind of served in three, three wars. wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of yeah, served in three wars. And each one is really a fight for freedom. Mm. You know, for him, that's what he's attempting to do. Hmm. That is a stunning story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I am too. So, I mean, that just naturally leads to uh, some of uh, your background into this. Like, what what sparked your interest right. as I, as uh, yes. Uh, me and Frida expand and our friendship grows as uh, I think we, my term, I call it nerd out. We nerd out on Detroit's <laughs> black history. That's right. That's so, right. Uh, it's easy to do. It is so easy. Uh, <laughs> what made you start unlocking some of these doors is I, I think often, um, yeah. even with even with the African, you know, the, the one thing about Charles Wright, even though it's named after Charles Wright, it's like, man, it should have a lot more Detroit's black history in here. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you you hear all of these other stories where it, it just, That's to me, mm -hmm. so much money and, and so many people came by way to and through Detroit that are a part of black America in general. Yes. So how did I come to this? So I was, um, I was a teacher, a history teacher, social studies for almost 20 years. Okay, so wait. I was in a classroom. Okay. <laughs> you know, what so, age group? Yeah, so, yeah, so I taught K through 12, 10 of the years, half of the time that I was a teacher, I taught middle school. Okay. So oh, I taught man. middle school at Insorma Institute, Public okay. School Academy, Bible the African Week. Center, yep. So I taught oh, there okay. yeah, for yeah. 10 years, um, and I taught middle school there. So most of what I do is really kind of middle schoolish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like to say that I'm still a middle school teacher, even when I'm doing tours and I have uh, my elders there or um, people who are my age or older, mm -hmm. I'm really delivering really a middle school lesson. I mean, because that's the way I am now because I've taught that way for no, so I'm long. people like, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, given what we know about Americans, middle school is about yeah. the highest thing you want to go with teaching right, some right. of the stuff. And, 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 and it's, it, it is the that level is really the basic area where we really need to focus on some of the stuff we've missed. Mm -hmm. And so I taught that 
for, for years. And I was teaching history. So I was teaching about the American Revolution. I was teaching geography. I was teaching about the Underground Railroad. I was teaching about the Civil Rights Movement, the Labor Movement, the Black Power Movement. I was teaching about all of these things. And they were learning about all these places. They were learning about Montgomery, Alabama, where, mm -hmm. of course, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. They were learning about New York and Rochester, where um, Harriet Tubman was taking people to get free from enslavement. So they were learning about all these places. Selma, Alabama, where, of course, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you had um, Bloody Sunday. So they were learning all these different places. And then I would bring up Detroit to my students. And they kind of knew about Montgomery and they knew about Selma. They were like, yeah, well, you know about that. And I would say, you know, some of the civil rights stuff happened in Detroit. And they were like, no, it didn't. They didn't believe me. Oh, hmm. You know, Underground Railroad was in Detroit too. Harry Tubman never came here, but there was under, other Underground hmm. Railroad leaders here in the city of Detroit. No, wait, that never happened. Hmm. Come on, I live in Detroit. It, that didn't happen. And I'm like, some of these places are like right around that corner from the school. We, you could, we could go there. We could go to Ash and Sweet's house. Come on, we can. Mm. And, and they didn't know these places. So they became field trips for my students mm. to teach them. Because I felt that I was cheating them. Mm -hmm. If I'm telling them all about Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm telling them about um, Selma, Alabama, I'm telling them about Oakland, California, where the Black Panther Party started, but I'm not telling them about the Republic of New Africa being founded here in the city of Detroit. So I thought I was cheating them by telling them about all these other places, but not telling them about Detroit. So instead of me taking them to the zoo or taking them to Cranbrook and all those, my field trips became these black history sites in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. nice. After they learned these things and went home and told their parents, their parents started joining the tours. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the trips. Like, that's a round started, And then after the parents, there were people who weren't parents or students who wanted to come. And mm -hmm. there's no way to facilitate people who aren't parents or students to come on field trips with the school. So I had to do something else. I had to come up with something. So I would teach. And then on weekends and in the summers and on the breaks, I would do these field trips for parents, for t other teachers, for adults mainly. But some students, but mainly adults were going on these trips, people who couldn't go with the school. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's how it started like that. Hmm. And my tour business and history presentations that I do now, Black Scroll Network History and Tours, that's the name of the company. That can, comes out of me trying to find a way to teach history to as many people as possible. Hmm. And I can't do it, in, I can't teach everybody in a classroom because everybody just can't Isn't come, in the they can't come into a school, it doesn't work mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But I had to find some way to teach them too. And so now this is what I do full time. So is there a lot of enthusiasm? Do you get a lot of demand? Um, what? And, and, and tell us, is there a website? Yes. I'm jumping ahead a little yes, bit because yes. we got to get back to some history. Yes, yes, yes. I want folk to, to know this. Yes, yes. So, yes, there's a high demand. So, um, as I, once I, you know, maybe the first two years, I was a business in name only. So, I've been, I'm, I'm almost, six, it'll be six years in June. So, this, the company will be six years old in June. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. The first two years, I, I think I was a business in name only. I wasn't getting a lot of business, but I was doing what I could, you know, and I was doing a lot of free tours and things like that because I wanted the history to be taught whether or not I could support myself with the business. And in the last three years, of course, it has really picked up. And, of course, this month was uh, highly um, busy for me, and so this is Black History Month, but this particular Black History Month has been unlike all of the pre previous ones. So almost every day this month, I have been either leading a tour or doing a presentation somewhere in the city or state. Hmm. So uh, I've been highly um, highly in demand. I've been high in high demand, so that's great. And it shows that people really have an interest in history. And I think we all innately know that we need to know history 
You know, it's just when we are in the classroom learning it, sometimes we fall asleep. You know, learning it because the way history is presented in a school and in a classroom is different than you going to sites, going to places where these things happened. Mm -hmm. And so I like to bring the people to history and bring history to the people. Mm -hmm. And that can't fully be done in a classroom. Although, you know, as teachers, there are many great teachers out there who are doing all they can to make history um, lively. So I, I want to be clear. I'm not the only one out here that's making history great. There are many other teachers, and some of them have to work within classroom conditions because that's what the resources of their schools have. And they're doing everything they can. They're bringing all kinds of stuff in. They're bringing people in to uh, talk to the students about the life that they lived in Salma, Alabama, or even in the city of Detroit. So they're doing those things. They're, doing, they're making history innovative. But my way of doing it is bringing people to these historic sites. And if I can't do that, then I'll bring those historic sites to them. Okay. A uh, uh, website or whatever for that person. Yes. So, right now so like, there's two. I want to book it for my family reunion. <laughs> so there's, yes. <laughs> and family reunions are my favorite tours. Because for that day, yes, here family reunions are my favorite tours. Because for that day, I'm a member of that family. Oh, that's awesome. And it's totally right. different. It's totally different than doing that. one for an institution. So mm -hmm. doing one for the, uh, doing a tour for the UAW is one thing. But doing a tour for the Jenkins family mm -hmm. is something totally different. Mm -hmm. He's gonna make me rock a little bit. <laughs> That's Hold right. On. So <laughs> I'm gonna just tell you <laughs> that it, it's not, a, it's no comparison. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, so, um, yeah. so yeah, I love family reunions. They're my favorite tour. So mm -hmm. eventbrite.com is where my public tours are listed. Okay. So you mm -hmm. can go to eventbrite.com and just type in Black Scroll Detroit. Okay. And you'll see all of my public tours. Those are tours you can just show up or pay ahead mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then show up to those tours. Okay. Um, of course, all my information to how to contact me for booking your own personal tour or for your organization is also there. Okay. So you can do that as well. Good. I also have, of course, have a Facebook site, Black Scroll Network History and Tours. Black Scroll Network History and Tours. That is the Facebook site. And mm. at some point, I'm working on it. I'll have a full, all the way website that you'll mm. be able to do all kinds of things on. Just not there yet, but will be shortly. Okay. <laughs> All right, so now uh, some, some more of these questions just like for you and your library and like just your journey learning this because you share what led you to the touring. Mm -hmm. What led you to say, all right, I'm about to get some of this information about the Shrine of Black Madonna or the yes. Republic of New Africa. Like what opened some of those doors for you? When were you that the, the middle school student that was your middle school student? So um, I, as a teacher, of course, in teaching social studies and teaching in an African-centered school, I was doing a lot of teaching of ancient history. So I was teaching ancient Kemet, Egypt. Mm -hmm. I was teaching the Mali Empire, Ghana, Songhai, Manamatapa, the Zulu. So I was teaching a lot of ancient African origin of humanity. So I was doing a lot of that teaching. And of course, that's important. And, it, and students and everybody needs to be grounded in the fact of Africa's contribution to world civilization. So everybody needs to have at least a grounding in that. But mm -hmm. there's a history that we can touch. There are people living who live during times that we talk about. So when we're talking about the civil rights movement, there are people who were living, you yeah. know? And when we're talking about the black power movement, there are people who were living. We're talking about 67 in Detroit, there are people who were living. Mm -hmm. So of course, eventually I'm gonna run into some of these people, which I did, and they began to talk about their lives, things mm -hmm. that happened in their lifetime. That's different than doing research about ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, yeah. 
where there's no one we from ancient yeah. Egypt to talk to right. me about yeah. their personal yeah. experience yeah. of being a pharaoh. Yeah, you are not running in the M-Hotep <laughs> at right. Starbucks. And, but if you do, let us know. Right. Give us a call. Right, right. I, I want to be there. But it's, it's, something, it's something different when you're talking to people who are living these things. And that affected me, talking hmm. to people yeah. who were who experienced these things. I'm talking about the big four. Well, there were people who got beat up and arrested by the big four, and they were telling me about their experience with the big four. That's totally different than reading something and doing this research and looking at archives, okay, although that's for, important. And for the person listening, the big four, and it's funny, so yeah. like, to, that is one of the more highlighted groups that yes. uh, specifically targeted young black men in the city of Detroit and uh, police officers that just beat up yes. black men consistently. But, yeah, yes. I mean, it, it's one of those things where, you know, if if the big four were uh, Michael Jordan, then, you know, most cops were like Kobe Bryant. So they may be <laughs> dropping like <laughs> 40 right. beat downs a day. Right. Somebody else was coming behind with 30. So, like, it, you know, yeah. sometimes we have to uh, yeah. normalize yeah. Uh, That's true. some of the discussions too. But the big four was definitely known yeah, they were. Uh, and and really one of the uh the the fight against the big four was one of the rallying cries that led to the election of coleman alexander that's right that's right yeah, yeah that was um executive order 1a executive order I'm, yeah executive order 1a was the dissolution of the big four um, it was one uniformed officer who was the driver three plainclothes officers um who were in the car an unmarked dark color unit of course that everybody knew um, but it didn't take long before everybody knew what that car looked like and there were four officers and of course two in the front two in the back and they really weren't met to go through the normal process of arresting you filling out an uh, um, arrest sheet you know putting you in jail and um, reading you your rights and making sure that you showed up to court and that wasn't what they were about they had another way of dealing with people and of course it was very physical and very brutal so when you talk about the experiences that you had doing the tours and engaging community and, and starting to hear back uh, lived experiences, mm -hmm. are, you are you finding in those stories that you are collecting uh, some linear truth or, or are you finding a huge variation? And if has there been anything that has been a tremendous aha for you in terms of a learning moment from talking to some of these folk who have been through these experiences? So yes, yeah, so it so in some cases, and and I'm gonna say I, I admit that they probably are not the majority. In some cases, it is linear. It it, it pe what people are telling me lines right up with what I researched. But in most cases, I'm getting a lot of ahas. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. Whoa, for real? I didn't. You know, I didn't. That was what was really going on. I didn't. So I'm getting a lot of ahas. Things I did not know. Um, things that I never suspected. Um, so I'm getting more of that than the share, share the, like one of your last moments where you thought that thought like that about something in Detroit's uh, history. So one of the things I thought um, in Detroit's history, one of the ahas that I got, um, of course, it was around 67. So last year, of course, was the 50th anniversary of the 1967 of rebellion. Yeah. That's right. And so I, I, cause I led dozens of tours dealing with that issue in 1967. And of course, one of the major things that was talked about is the snipers. So I'm mm -hmm. sure you've probably heard stories of snipers. The police mm -hmm. were, were really worried about snipers and some of the people who were shot were allegedly snipers. And, and some of the um, um, 
firemen were um, worried they couldn't put out fires because they were worried about snipers. Right. Yeah. So you probably heard these stories, and, and I did too. And so I, I didn't know the veracity of many of the police um, allegations. So, I, of course, I kind of, you know, I always presented it as they were allegedly, there was allegations of snipers. So that's the way I presented it. But, of course, now with talking to people, and including some people who were police officers, um, I found that um, the police on the first day and the second day, mainly, it happened all through the five days, but mainly on the first and second and, and, and early on the day of the third day of the uprising, were going through the streets and shooting out the, the, the street lights, the police and the National Guard. And for the most part, they couldn't shoot. You know, they, they weren't shooting at one time, shooting at the street light one time and hitting it. Mm -hmm. They were shooting pow, 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 11, 12 times trying to hit that street light. Yeah. They believed, of course, the street lights would, would provide anybody who wanted to be a sniper an ability to see the police. And so they start shooting out the streetlights. Of course, the Army thought this is the dumbest thing in the world. So when the Army shows up on the third day, they thought, you never do this, you're creating more chaos. So the police are doing this. And so they're shooting 11, 12 times. And there are police officers and National Guardsmen a block, two blocks, three blocks away. And guess what they think is happening when mm -hmm. they keep hearing these shots? Mm -hmm. They think it's sniper they're snipers. Right. And they come over and start, um, um, start getting ready to start shooting. By the time they get over there to shoot, police have moved on down the block or whatever, and they hear the shots from the National Guard that are shooting at the alleged snipers, and guess what they think? Right. Snipers. And so the snipers, in most cases, not I can't say for every single case, I can't say there never was not one sniper, I can't say that, but for much of the cases, we can trace them straight to police officers and National Guardsmen who are shooting first at streetlights and then shooting at each other. The police officer who's killed, Oshove, it, J J Jeremy Oshove, is killed by a police officer. So the one police officer who does get killed during, um, it was shot, he's killed by a, a gunshot, is killed by another police officer. So the police officers are shooting at what they think are snipers and the other police officers are shooting back at what they think are snipers. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's a aha moment for that's me. A, that, <laughs> that was that's, an aha. That's, that's unique. <laughs> uh -huh, that's a... I, I think, um, <laughs> hmm, man, there's so many different questions to ask you uh, as as you go on these tours. But let's go back to like the people interacting, and then uh, Frida had a, a very that's why mad love for Frida. She asked the question I was going to ask is. I find out more about these things, and then I, I I look to empathize and put myself in the shoes of this as a lot of um, the the human rights that we're looking for as black people in America um, in this in this journey, you know, it, the absolutes are very hard to define. Mm -hmm. So um, even when it comes to perspective, so even the way she phrased the question, like, you know, have you found some differences in opinion? Because yes, you even yes, talked about the Republic of New Africa. Yes. And that's a classic example, as you know, Chokwe was one of my, uh, he was another one of my close big homies mm -hmm. and his perspective about it and so many of, of the other people Baba Mike is some Mike Anderson is somebody I want to interview and everything but like even everyone from the New Bethel in shooting incident that took place there yes I've heard a lot of different perspectives yeah. even about that and mm -hmm. then as people look back at it mm -hmm. do you think that um, do you think that uh, it was something uh, like w when we look at like 60s and really in the 70s Detroit, was it um, 
was it a, a, a consciousness of that that brought about like a, a a more universal like understood this is where we're at and this is what we're doing like like what what was it that led so many of the people here in Detroit to so many of these variations of organizations and even you know like your father from like mm -hmm. faith coming here that's right like uh in, in faith and in, in, in black nationalism mm -hmm. and nation building that's right. like that's right what what do you think uh was the pulse for that here so there's a lot of um feeders to the movement building in the city of Detroit. Now, part of it is, like I said, it's kind of in the DNA of the African-American community in the city of Detroit because of how it really develops. It kind of develops as this fight for freedom hmm. um, during the period of slavery, during the Underground Railroad. So some of your first institutions, slave fighting institutions or freedom fighting, freedom fighting for freedom institutions are religious institutions. And so, mm -hmm. uh, Faith and freedom go hand in hand for African Americans in the 1800s. The people who are starting churches are the same people who are leaders of the Underground Railroad. People who are leaders of the Underground Railroad are the same people starting schools. So these aren't three separate kinds of movements, education, freedom, uh, or civil rights, and faith. These are all the same people. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for who were the educational leaders for African Americans in the 1800s, oh, that's the same people involved in the Underground Railroad. If you're looking for who are the uh, faith leaders in the African American community, all oh, those same people fighting for opening up schools. So these are all the same people. Hmm. And so th these, that is a connection. And so that's going to be the foundation for the, for the building of the African American community. You can't get Paradise Valley, which is the black business center of Detroit from the 1920s to the 1940s, really maybe up to the 1950, you can't get that without Black Bottom. Right. You, know, you, won't have a, you won't have a customer base without the people who live adjacent to where this business center is. But you can't have Black Bottom without these institutions, some businesses, some faith institutions like Second Baptist and Bethel Amy and St. Matthew's and then later churches that will come out of those three. Um, you can't have that community, but you can't have Second Baptist without the uprising to free Thornton and Ruth of Blackburn in 1833, because it's the people who freed Thornton and Ruth of Blackburn from enslavement, from slave catchers, who three years later go and found Second Baptist Church. So this is all connected. This is all, you know, a connected history. So you've got this undergirder of the African-American community that starts with this fight for freedom. And they build institutions. They build businesses. They build churches. They build um, schools. So you got that undergirding. And then, of course, you have the new migration, the great migration in the, in the 1900s. You have people coming from the South. And they're coming to a place, of course, running into the Detroit version of Jim Crow because housing segregation and school segregation and, in some cases, job discrimination, is, that's going on in the city of Detroit. It's not lynching every day like down South. So it's not that version, that extreme version of segregation that's happening down South. But there is this limitation on what you can do in this, even in the city of Detroit. So they're coming in, but so they, they're in an area, predominantly black bottom, but there are other communities where African-Americans live, but concentrated in, in, what, in the lower east side in black bottom. So they're there with these institutions that have been there mm. prior to them. That's where they're coming to. So Fanny Richards, who comes in 1850, who becomes a member of Second Baptist Church, becomes the first black public school teacher at every elementary, she teaches at a colored school first and leads a lawsuit to overturn segregation in Detroit public schools. So she's teaching at every elementary school. That's in, that's in the black bottom. Huh. So she's in, she's got here way before the, the great migration. 
She got here when slavery was going on down south. And she gets here, but institutions come from that group of people, and that, those are the institutions that are going to meet the needs of the people who come in the Great Migration. So they're being inculcated with people who have been part of that freedom fight, even though they weren't here for that. They're, they're, they're meeting, they're interfacing with that, that ideology. And then, of course, you got to bring it to the, the Black Power Movement. And what, to me, and Detroit is different. So, so Detroit, Detroit is different. So, of course, and we know in the, in on the West Coast, there's this major fight between the Black Panther Party and us, you know, which causes some some shootouts and some deaths. Now yeah. we know the FBI is all involved in that too, and we know in New York there's been some some major um, um, uprisings or major um, tensions, um, even during the Black Power movement, but even prior to that with Malcolm and the Nation of Islam. So we have that going on. Mm -hmm. But in Detroit, even though there's some of this kinds of tension, the level of tension where people are shooting one another over different ideologies of black power and civil rights is not happening. And I, a large part of that is these foundations that have already been undergirded the community. And then on top of that, by the time we get to the 60s and um, uh, the, the mid 60s, you have, particularly speaking for the black power segment, you have these three uh, pillars. I call them the three pillars of Detroit's black power movement. And they kind of keep it from going too far. Even though people don't agree on everything, they keep it from going off the rails. Of course, one of those pillars is the, um, the Boggs. So um, um, Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs are one of the pillars. They're really radical leftists. And they're bringing radical economic theory and ideology into this thinking of black power. So it's not just about racial nationalism. You got to think, you got to have some economic ideology in there too. And they're bringing that to this fore. The other of the uh, pillars are the Henry brothers. And so Milton Henry and his brother Richard Henry, who are, of course are going to be Imari Obadeli and uh, Gaidi Obadeli mm -hmm. for the Republic of New Africa, they're another pillar. And they're attorneys, they're distinguished, uh, but they're firebrands too. So they're on both, you know, they're able to talk to both kinds of people, the young firebrands and the older establishment folks. So they're able to speak both languages. And then the other pillar, of course, is Reverend Albert Clegg. So Reverend Albert Clegg Jr., who, of course, will be Jeremoji Abebe Ajiman and the founder of the Shrine of Black Madonna, is another pillar and they kind of form the Detroit version of black power. Because the black power is an ideology that has a lot of ways of interpretation during the 1960s. And so there's a, a, a SNCC, Kwame Ture t uh, interpretation. There's a Black Panther Party kind of interpretation. You know, there's even a Nation of Islam version of the interpretation, what they think black power meant. There's even Adam Clayton Powell's interpretation mm -hmm. of what black power meant. And the Detroit version of the of black power is best interpreted by these three pillars during that time. And they kind of hold the Detroit version from getting into the internecine warfare that some of the others, not saying that folks didn't get upset with each other, but the shootouts and the killings and people don't trust one another and they refuse to do anything with the other person because that other person is involved. And that part of the black power in the city of Detroit is minimized, not totally removed, but minimized because of those three pillars. Hmm. Okay, I'm just letting that resonate in my spirit for a minute. Let me, let me, because you started talking about um, 
the migration. And, and I'd like for you to mm-hmm. unpack that a little yes. bit more. Because uh, when you first brought up Fight for Freedom, that's immediately where I went. Because yes, yes. These individuals tra- traveling from the South that's to the right. North were fighting for their freedom. Oh, yes, they were. And and so and they get here and they find that freedom is is not. That's right. It's not, it, 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 it's, it's still uh, eluding them. It's still elusive. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. So, so how do you think that the Great Migration uh, continues? And the experiences thereof, particularly around housing segregation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how has that shaped our c- current space? And, and 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 what does that mean when we think about gentrification as we're looking in all of the kind of transition that's occurring in the city right now? So um, African Americans are leaving the South, as we said, and they're leaving in some cases tenant farming. A large percentage of the cases they're leaving tenant farming and sharecropping, which of course is just one step above slavery. Because, mm. because you're forced to it's work on land. That's right, yeah. So you're forced to work on the land and you, you sell a portion of the land that the landowner allows you to farm for your own purposes. That's your pay. You don't pay it in money. You're paid in crop. And so you have this little bit of crop. You sell that. After you sell that, that's supposed to be your profit. But then you're forced to pay rent for living there and pay rent for the tools and pay rent for the seed. By the end of paying all this rent to the landowner, you're in debt and you have to work the next year to pay off the debt. Some states and some counties in the South are passing laws saying you can't, you can't leave work if you owe a debt. So they're really creating a, a level of slavery. People are, in some cases, are escaping from um, from sharecropping, almost mm-hmm. like escaping on an underground railroad. Mm-hmm. So that some and some people have to leave. Um, so you have that. That's the conditions in the South. And of course, also during this time period, one or two people are being lynched every day somewhere in the South. Mm-hmm. And so when people are leaving and coming to places like New York, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Chicago, and Detroit. They're, they're fleeing, of course, for a better life, a better economic life. They can get a job in the meatpacking industry in, in Chicago or on the railroads. They can get a job in New York. They can get a job in some of the steel plants in, in Philadelphia. So they're, they're um, in Pittsburgh. They're, so they're, they're living, and of course, the auto factories here in the city of Detroit, they're work, living, coming for a better economic life. But because there's lynchings going on in the South, one almost one or two every day almost, they're not just leaving for a better economic life. They're leaving for life itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're coming to the city of Detroit, and they're coming into the Detroit version of Jim Crow. So housing discrimination, school uh, inequality and segregation, and job discrimination, they're coming to that. But one thing that they have, or many of them are able to have, is a higher, of course, wage. Mm-hmm. So they're able to... M- Make enough money to be able to support their family in, in most reference cases, to compared to what they work. Yes, the compared, same way. Yes, yes. the same way uh, people, which is such a weird concept, though, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, illegal worker or whatever. It's yes, like yes. it's like they're still being taken. Oh yeah, they're still being exploited. exploited. Yes, yes, uh, for yes. the labor. Right, right. But in reference to what they were coming from. That's right. That's right. And so, so, so as they're coming to the city of Detroit and they're they're running into this on some level, not in anything else, not socially, not politically, they are not equal to, to white workers. But in many cases, economically, their income is, is about the same. So they're both working at Ford Motor Company being paid $5 a day. African Americans are working in the foundries. They're working in the most dirtiest jobs. Mm-hmm. They're segregated in the plants. They can't be foremen at first. All their foremen are whites, sometimes from the South, many times from the South. So they're being discriminated against, but their pay income level is equal. 
Their status in society is not. But mm. their income is equal. But they, because of housing discrimination, this is going to create something. Mm. Because housing is not just a place where you live. It is that. But it's also a way to gain wealth. Mm -hmm. And because African Americans are being discriminated in housing, first in, by individuals, people just say, I'm not going to sell to you. And then they put it in their deeds and with these racial restrictive covenants. So not only they're not going to sell to you, the next people who buy the house, they can't sell to African Americans either. And so they're going to make a legacy of discrimination. Then the federal government's going to get in the discrimination business with the 1934 Federal Housing Act, where they're going to subsidize the building of homes and subsidize the mortgages on those homes for areas that are racially homogeneous. And what they mean by racially homogeneous is all white. Because if African Americans attempt to move into a neighborhood, they say that neighborhood won't be all white if you move there. It won't be racially homogeneous. So you can't get it. So African Americans figure that out real quick. Okay, so it has to be racially homogeneous. Okay, well, I'll, I want one of those mortgages in my black community. I live in an all black community in Black Bottom. Give me one of those mortgages. But of course, the federal government puts maps around that has a red line and the map is, is, is colored in red in areas where they do not give those subsidized loans out to. And so that's mm -hmm. where we get the term redlining from. Mm -hmm. So African Americans are unable to take part in one of the largest wealth building periods in America's history. And so because of that, housing discrimination becomes uh, the legacy that we now deal with in gentrification. So there is a wealth gap because those white workers who were equal in income just about with African-American workers in the 1930s and 40s are able to get low interest rate mm -hmm. loan Take homes. advantage of and exploit an opportunity That's that right. we never got. Right. 20 years later, that $15,000 home that they got that federal loan on and they paid the federal government back seventeen dollars or $18,000 back for that $15,000, that home is worth $80,000 or in some cases $100,000. They're able to use the equity in that home to open up a store, a business, send their kids to college, buy a bigger house, and rent that one out. They're able to use it as a stepping stone to wealth. 20 years later, African-Americans, by the same Federal Housing Act of 1934, were living in federal housing projects. So they had been paying rent for 20 years. They have no equity. So they were, at, in 1934, they were equal in income. But in 1954, 64, the wealth, there's a wealth gap. And so this creates the condition by which we're now dealing with gentrification because now people who have, who, whose parents and grandparents benefited from these subsidized housing loans 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are able to come back and have more resources than the people who stayed here mm -hmm. because they were unable to take advantage. In most cases, there's always exceptions. Mm -hmm. yeah. But in most cases, they were unable to take advantage of those um, situations. And just recently, there was a recent study that housing discrimination is up. So uh, Reveal just did a recent um, uh, in-depth study on housing discrimination and found that we're still dealing with it. And mm -hmm. this area is one of the most high, highly segregated, uh, highly, uh, um, housing discrimination is high in the metro Detroit area. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's so funny as uh, just the, the segregation that exists in metro Detroit. It's so thick that mm -hmm. like, even people from Chicago come here. In Chicago, it's like, <laughs> yes, you know, right, right, it's right. Like across you know, the <laughs> yes. world is like supposed to be one of the, the most foundation of segregation, right? Places, but still, people, you know, get on the metro together. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's, it's way more commonplace mm -hmm. to walk into a place and see people of different mm -hmm. races and nationalities in Chicago than it is in a city like Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, now, now, with this, um, 
and it's so funny. I'm, I'm fresh off a podcast with Kwame Kenyatta the other day, and like it, and even in talking to him, like these snapshots of like the the build up for the fight for African centered education to be in DPS. Yes, yes. And uh, the win of that, and he was talking about like Huffington Millen, like having millions of dollars at the table, and yes. just basically dollars that generally are always advocated allocated for the 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 teaching plans these textbooks that's right all of this that are given to white company after white company mm -hmm. when the check is written and given to any school system so it's just like all right yeah so here's the the, the we're buying books this year and it's like no nah, we're all african centered now mm -hmm. so then it makes me think like okay now let me let me go two steps further so not only you know i i was i was almost dismissive thinking that the 1.5 billion dollar bond approved by the uh by Detroiters mm -hmm. to invest into Detroit public schools That's at right. the time. Um, I was just thinking like it was a lot of money, but it was more than a lot of money. It's a lot of money to a group of people that have already stood aground and said, we want African-centered education to exist because when I was in high school, graduating in 2001, I grew up with African-centered education, mm -hmm. learning English, so I learned, you know, Autobiography of Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. Autobiography of Malcolm X. Like, yeah. I didn't have to read To Kill a Mockingbird to mm -hmm. learn English, mm -hmm. which to me is another inception of mm -hmm. the idea yes. of mm -hmm. black rapist man, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so, um, these things kind of like all, all come together. Now, those fights at some point, like I guess like along my journey in life I was thinking man that's radical to say like look explicitly we need African centered education if it's black kids mm -hmm. explicitly you know Coleman Young's 50-50 mm -hmm. practicing really it was over that but it's mm -hmm. like I'm hiring 50% black people and I'm and you, I'm contracting out to 50% black people period mm -hmm. like it's been times in my life where I was thinking like man that's radical mm -hmm. but looking at how things are now is there even a way for something to coexist where it's probably not that radical mm. and for people to, and this is just an opinion mm -hmm. question for possible for both <laughs> of you guys, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm as, as I'm looking at the snapshot of what's happening now, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's eye opening. Like I, I can't even think of that adjective of like some of the things that I'm seeing happening in the doors that are being opened, uh, in and around the city of Detroit. It's just, it's shocking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, of course, times have changed, as we can see. And one of the things about being a historian is that I learned that, and I try to teach that as I teach history, that history can go more than one way. In the textbook, it always goes one way. So if you teach history the way textbooks teach history, then you, you mess, you're not teaching history the way history is. Mm -hmm. So the textbooks teach history that things are bad, and as time goes on, things always get better. That's the way textbooks teach history. And they all have names like that, the triumph of America. The, you know, they all got names like that, the American century. You know, they got names that really just talk about how great things got. Mm -hmm. And that's not how history works. History, you know, things are bad and get better, and they also go backwards, where mm -hmm. things get worse. And if we don't think that that's possible, um, then, I mean, just take a look at the last couple of years. Right. You know, so even that, but it just history tells us that that's the case. There was reconstruction after the Civil War, where African Americans ran for office and became governors and, and senators and congressmen and mayors, and then there was the end of that. Right. Jim Crow set in and African Americans couldn't vote and they couldn't e even register to vote without being attacked and killed. So things can go more than one way. 
And that, that actually leads to a question that I wrote, and I didn't think that we'd have a chance to get to it, mm. and that is, do you think history repeats itself? And of course, you've just answered that. Mm -hmm. And so would you say um, that the Obama years, was that considered the second period of Reconstruction? Oh, no, wow, that's a good thing. <laughs> okay, so I would say um, that that is one, that is a, um, a high point in, and for, for African Americans identifying themselves as really being a part of this country. This country really. Seeing the part, possibility. This, this, yes. this, I see that this country could be something. Yes. This country could be something for African Americans. I don't have to feel alienated from the country that I was born in. Yes. That, that was a high point of that feeling. Because just before Obama was elected, if we, we, it's hard for us to even remember that. But if we go back to just before Obama was elected, you had the Gina Six. You had um, you had the Michael Richards who um, is yeah. on Seinfeld talking right. about mentioning somebody yeah. Kramer. 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 You yeah. had that. You had yeah, yeah. you had Don Imus talking about the, the, these these African American uh, women who play basketball. Yep. Um, wow. You, all of that happened just before Obama was elected, and African Americans in the city in, in America, when they did polls, really felt that America was was horrible. Is is worse. Black people really. Um, aren't, don't, we, we really are like second-class citizens in America. They really were feeling that because it was thing after thing after thing. They, the one, the golf um, channel lady said that to, to beat um, Tiger Woods, you're going to have to take him in the back and lynch him. All that happened within the two years just before Obama was elected. So Obama was elected in 2008. All the things I just said happened in 2006 and 2007. So African Americans were really alienated from the United States, many of them, mm. where it really felt like this might not be we may not ha ever have a good place in this country. Things are getting bad. And then Obama was elected. And the hope and aspirations of African Americans changed to such a degree that we forgot all that stuff that had just happened. There are people who I talk to do about that and they have to scratch their heads to remember that. They're like, oh yeah, I think it, uh, Gina, what? Well, it was six of them. And they don't remember it. That was big news mm -hmm. when it happened in 2006. Mm -hmm. That was big news, but it was almost forgotten after the, um, eight years of Obama. And so what we see is history can go more than one way. Mm -hmm. We had it going definitely backwards during the two years before Obama, and then a kind of a forward. But even during Obama's period, we saw all these attacks, these racist attacks, and this rise of what we now call the alt-right, white nationalists. That was really rising during mm -hmm. Obama's period. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, then, and these police shootings being recorded, in our face and telling us, doesn't matter that you have a president, we still kill you and shoot you down in the street and no one goes to jail or even gets fired or lose a day's pay for it. Yeah. So we were being reminded what America could be also. It could be this, Obama, but it could be this over here too. Mm -hmm. you know. So we were being reminded of, of these both, these two things in America mm -hmm. at the same time. So what I say is, Martin Luther King Jr. said that um, the, the arc of the universe, the arc of the moral universe is, lo is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. I say that the arc of the uni moral universe is long and it does not bend toward justice unless you bend it. Mm. <laughs> right? Mm. So it, it bends toward justice if people bend it. Because history on its own does not bend towards righteousness. It can go either way. It can go backwards or it can go forward in progress. You know, that's <laughs> so important because we have heard throughout the 
the legacy of our struggle wait your turn mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and so when you are if you just are patient enough mm-hmm. things are going to get better the mm-hmm. trickle down the trickle up however <laughs> you want to refer to it mm-hmm. things will eventually get better for you just mm-hmm. be patient mm-hmm. don't ruffle <laughs> feathers just wait a minute right, right right i mean i mean that was what martin luther king was dealing with with the letter of birmingham jail That's dealing right. with, with yeah. the the group of, of my ministers. favorite my mm-hmm. favorite uh perspective of Martin Luther King is that. Mm, right. Wow, you wow, know? yes, yes. And so for you to be able to articulate that famous quote mm-hmm. that he speaks to in such an important way that we have to be a part of this, we have to be intentional, we have mm-hmm. to engage in activism in a way that makes sure that our gets yes, bent. That's right. It really is a charge. That's right. Right. That's right. You can't sit passively by no, no. and and wait your and turn. And wait that it's gonna actually happen it's not on its happen. own because right. it's not. Right. It never has. Right. Right. <laughs> So, so that just leads, uh, as we get closer to the close, uh, like a, a book list or, or if they're not, if they, if they don't want a, a book, then give a documentary list. And then if they don't want a documentary, then a, an organization list or, or something, uh, give some information for people to, uh, I mean, woke is, I guess the term that's more, uh, <laughs> more, more apropos or, or it's more in vogue now or be conscious. I mean, nation building is a term that I call it because mm-hmm, I still mm-hmm. think that it, it deals with uh, building a nation that is more, is de- designed and inclusive of, uh, of us as black people in America. But uh, what, what should a person be looking out for along with going on one of your tours that, uh, that you can share? So um, I'm going to focus the, the, these resources on Detroit. Okay. Because cool. of course, they, I, I mean, there's a wide yeah, the expanse internet. of oh, history, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to kind of focus on Detroit because number one, Detroit is overlooked too much when we're talking about this history. Like I said earlier, when we think of the Underground Railroad, we think of Harriet Tubman in the East Coast, mm-hmm. which of course we need to, but we mm-hmm. don't think about Detroit, which we ought to as well. Mm-hmm. And we don't think of Detroit when we think of Black Power or the Civil Rights Movement. We think of Selma and Montgomery and and Black mm-hmm. Power. We think of Oakland, California, but we don't think of Detroit. So I'm going to focus on Detroit in my That's resources. Good. So the first thing I'm gonna, um, one of the first ones I'm gonna give is The Dawn of Detroit by Dr. Taya Miles. So Dr. Mm-hmm. Dawn of Detroit, she just recently I published this. New. Yep, it's yeah. new. I was gonna say, I don't I even have that. Yeah, so Dawn of Detroit, yeah it is. It's awesome, awesome, awesome okay. research. So The Dawn of Detroit really outlines um, for us the history of slavery in the city of Detroit. Now, when I used to teach this on my tours, and it would be a wow and a aha for people who were on my tours when I would tell them that Detroit had slavery. That was just part of the story. And I was telling it from that vantage point. I was really trying to let them know that Detroit has this history that we really don't know about. But Taya takes it even a step further. And what she says is, and what she shows us, she doesn't really say it outright, but she is saying it without saying it outright, is that the, 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 the French period, when French people are enslaving people in the city of Detroit. When the British take over, those French residents, many of whom are slave owners, become part of the British government in the city of Detroit. Because the British, they, they give it up to the French. You've been here, you know, mm-hmm. so you know this place better than us, so we want to make you the different people, who, you know, we want to make you the different representatives to, to deal with this land, because you know it better than us. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, British people are trickling in, and they're enslaving Africans and Native Americans too, but they're predominantly African American or Africans. They're enslaving them, and then the United States takes over, and when the United States makes this United States territory after the American Revolution, they make those British and French people part of the American government here. Mm-hmm. So those become the American government people. So white supremacy, slave ownership, really gets 
institutionalized in the American uh, form of Detroit. Hmm. Because your early powerful people, John R. Williams, Joseph Campaugh, uh, Alexander and, and William McComb, um, the Witherills, um, Antoine Bobien, uh, Alexander Shane, all of them, Jean Rivard, these are all slave owners in the city of Detroit, but they're also government people mm. in either the French, the British, or the American government. And so they bring their, those into the institutions themselves, and they bring that sensibility into those institutions. The longest still existing institution in the city of Detroit, and the longest business existing, was the Michigan Intelligentsia and Democratic Free Press, founded by Joseph Campaugh and John R. Williams, who were slave owners in the city of Detroit. Today it's the Detroit Free Press. Mm. So, mm. so that, so that changes, and it's going to help to shape the way Detroit is, from one vantage point. So, you're from the mm -hmm. from from the racist in 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 establishment power vantage point. It's shaped in this early history of whites who come into the country and dispossess the indigenous people and enslave mm -hmm. Africans. On the other flip side of that is there's a fight against that. That's going to shape. On the other end of that, and so there's a, a, a another recent book published, Black Detroit, Black Detroit, by Her Boy. Oh yeah, right. A People's History of Self Determination. That's the the subtitle. And so you're getting the other, well, you're getting both, but that one focuses primarily on the other side of the equation. Mm -hmm. So the Dawn of Detroit really focuses on how Detroit's establishment is formed, power establishment is formed in white supremacy, particularly slave ownership, in mm -hmm. the uh, in Black Detroit by Herb Boy, you're getting the foundation of the African American community being founded on a fight for freedom. Mm -hmm. So you're getting both sides of the same coin to really get to Detroit's history. Mm. If you get mm -hmm. those two, you have a foundation to learn everything else you need to know about the city That's of awesome. Detroit. Okay, so for the person that doesn't want to read, it's a lot of us <laughs> that don't read. Yes, yes. Other than your tour, what is it a documentary? Is it a show they should be watching? What, what, what other? Way can they drink in some knowledge? So I would um, I would advise them to um, be a part or or go to some of the programs by a number of organizations. One organization is the Fred Hart Williams Genealogical oh, Society. Yes. So I would um, I would implore them to go to their meetings there and in, in the Detroit Public Library. They meet in the Detroit Public Library once a month. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the date right, the, what what day their next meeting is, but it's easy to find. You can go to Detroit Public Library's website, and you can see where the meetings are held, what day they're held. So that would be an organization that would be a vast resource, and you can get some firsthand knowledge. You can talk to people who have this history. And in many cases, they've done so much research that it's more than a book. You, mm -hmm. it, you, know, you get more than a book. Yeah. And then another organization is the Black Historic Sites Committee, and they meet um, – the second Wednesday at the Detroit Historical Museum. Right, so that would be another place to go, another resource. Mm -hmm. The third resource is my organization. So I am the president of the Detroit chapter of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Of course, this is the organization founded by Dr. Carter G. Woodson yes. in 1915. We're the Detroit chapter. And so we meet the second Sunday of every month at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. And after every meeting, we have a history lesson. So, oh so we meet at 3 p.m. around 4, 4.15, the history lesson starts. So we kind of, after the meeting ends, we get a little break, go use the bathroom, get water or whatever, and then we have a history lesson. It's a different topic every month. 
So mm -hmm. um, the second Sunday. Second Sunday of every month. Is there a cost? And there's not a cost to come to the meeting. Eventually, we want you to be a member. And of course, there's a small membership and what's fee. The, what's the membership fee? The so membership fee is fifteen dollars oh. a year. So you're a member for a year for fifteen dollars. Okay. So, uh, and then the last thing I want to tell people to do is the local history conference, which is done by the Historical Society of Michigan. Mm -hmm. It's taking place on March 23rd and 24th. Are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. I'm now a trustee, so I'm a, mm. I'm on the board of trustees okay. for the Historical Society of Michigan, and I'm on the planning committee. And I'm going to be real about it. If you don't want to go because you just love history in general, there's some sessions there that are about our history yeah. that I made sure happen. So one of them is about the Algiers Motel. So Dan Aldrich and Dr. Danielle McGuire will be the panelists for that, and they're going to give a presentation about the Algiers Motel and the trials dealing with the police officers in the Algiers. And so come to that session. And, hmm. and come to the session... Also, the, the other session I want you to go to is the session on slavery in Detroit. We weren't able to get Dr. Tyre Miles, so we got Bill McGraw, who really 10 years ago, really in 2001, at the so-called 300th anniversary of the city of Detroit, began writing about slavery in the city of Detroit. He was a mm. Detroit news, a Detroit free press um, uh, um, new reporter then. Um, he's the, also the founder of um, the website M Live. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so he's, yes, he's that's yes. that was he's one of the founders of that website, the news website. Mm -hmm. He's really a historian, but he's a journalist, and he his writings prompted Taya to do her research to write mm. the book. Okay, so he'll be the panelist there. Along with that, we'll have Elyasa Shabazz talking about her her father Malcolm X and his history in the city of Detroit, and we'll also talk about the it'll be a session by Tom Stanton about the Black Legion, which was a white supremacist organization similar to the Ku Klux Klan, that really mm -hmm. dominated Detroit, mm -hmm. especially Highland Park in the 1930s. And, and let me throw in there, yeah. I'm also going to be there. Oh, yes. Um, I'm doing a session on my father. That's right, you sure are. I, I should have said that. Pulpit. Yes. Yeah. So, so check yes. us out as well. Preaching Beyond the Pulpit. So, so, there, you, so there you go. You can, you can read it. <laughs> That's right. Or you can, you can, you can uh, walk up and touch hands. That's right. And touch it. Mm -hmm. So you, you can get it either way. And uh, you definitely got it online through Detroit is Different today. We got to talk and we got to bring you back most definitely. Yes. You like a, a. You didn't even scratch the surface. I know. Thank you. I know. Yeah. You like yeah. a. It was, pow it was powerful. Grio with stuff. Yeah. Thank yeah. you yeah. so much, sir. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing me. Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> yeah. It was awesome. Beautiful. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.